Hi guys, welcome back to the podcast. Just before we get started here, just a little disclaimer before we get stuck into the content, just to reiterate that the information provided within these episodes are for informational purposes only. The content of this episode is not meant to be used, nor should it be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. Always seek advice from your healthcare professional before embarking on anything related to the topics within this episode. So guys, welcome to, uh, I don't know what episode we're on now. Seven. Seven? The, uh, guest, the interview, yeah, seven. guest interview number seven, the Muscle Mental Podcast, and we are premium to have uh, Dr. Ralph Esposito on um, from the States, all the way in New York. Best city ever. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so Ralph is, I mean, we'll let Ralph introduce himself. He's a, um, I think he classed himself as a, an integrative physician and a, and a researcher. So he's a pretty damn smart guy in the world of functional medicine. And, um, and we, we, I mean, we've got him on today to basically cover the ins and outs of, of the sex Some of the major players there. Um, obviously, for those that follow Ralph, if you don't, he has an incredible Instagram account, like unbelievably forthcoming with the information he puts on there. Um, and uh, in terms of like, male sexual health in particular, the stuff he puts out is is phenomenal. Um, and he's doing a pretty cool thing this month with uh, like Movember and, and I mean, is it specifically prostate awareness? It actually Movember is prostate testicular and uh, suicide or depression awareness. But I, you can just talk about those things and ignore the other parts of men's health. So yes, those things are the focus, but we talk everything men's health. Yeah, and, that, and I mean, we'll, we'll let you kind of introduce yourself a little bit more, but it's, uh, you know, thank you for putting on. I'm very excited for this episode. My pleasure, yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Actually, I'm not even here. I'm in New York, you guys are in the UK. But um, so as you mentioned, I'm a integrative practitioner. I, I practice in, uh, in New York City where I'm actually an acupuncturist as well. I have training, I have training in um, naturopathic medicine and also as a Chinese, in Chinese medicine. I did a lot of my work as an undergrad. I did my undergrad at NYU in nutrition. So that's my background is nutrition and dietetics. Uh, instead of becoming a dietitian, I went into the field of, um, I wanted to go into medicine. I said, I want to take this nutrition to a new level. I'm all about like one-upping myself and seeing what's out there and try to get on a, on a higher level of what is actually in the literature, what's in the research, what's in the field. So uh, while I was at NYU in my undergrad, and then even while I was in med school, uh, I was researching and uh, I was a medical intern at NYU Urology with one of my mentors, Dr. Espinoza. And that is when I just basically went, you know, neck deep in everything men's health, prostate cancer, enlarged prostate, prostate pain, low testosterone, like anything that's related to a man, I probably experienced it, researched it and uh, treated it with a team, of course. While I was at school, so that was for about six years, Went into private practice for a little bit, um, and then now I work as a medical consultant and a research analyst for a practice here in New York where uh, I work as the second set of eyes uh, and a second brain 
for the medical team so that every single patient gets a full-fledged, holistic, integrative approach with a, a medical doctor. We get a, a dietitian. We have a research team. So, uh, and I'm part of both aspects. I bridge the research with the with the clinical aspects. So, you know, there's a lot of people in, in research now, or in we call it academics, or academia, where all they do is research. But you tell them how to do this for a person, that's where they get stuck sometimes. So I try to bridge that gap and make things more fluid in terms of patient care. Awesome. And that's like, that's, is that quite a unique setup in terms of how they're dealing with patients there? Like yeah, to be honest, I've never seen it before. Yeah, I think ever heard of anything like that in the UK. No. That sounds amazing. Most doctors are one-off, right? They just try to handle everything on their own. I was talking to one of my best friends, and she was like, I need to learn more. She's like, you know so much. I said, because it's my job to. Like, my job. And I don't see eight patients a day. We don't do that. It's very individualized, and it's focused. And I have time to dedicate to the research. So. You know, that's just, that's just my life. And I, I love it. That's amazing. But it's so cool as well. Cause there's so many, so many doctors out there, like not even naturopathic physicians, but just regular medical physicians that will, you know, they're never up to date on, on research and stuff like that. Oh, God. Drives me nuts. To, to hear that there's people like yourself out there that, that do keep up. Yeah. Yeah, it drives me nuts because, you know, doctors like are still convinced that like eating eggs increases your cholesterol. I'm like, have we not learned that dietary cholesterol? I mean, this has been researched and pretty much well accepted in the research community. But some physicians are like, yeah, your cholesterol is high. Don't eat eggs. I'm like, no, that's not. Stop. Stop it. So I, I get it. That's like that. It's like that. You, a lot of the UK is still very dated in the way it's the way it thinks with the national health. Yeah, and even in the US, I mean, we were talking about this the other day. Like DHEA, you guys can't get that in the UK, right? I don't know if you can. I tried it because no chat the other week. Um, I tried looking into it, it seems incredibly hard to find, right? But in the US, it's really easy to get. But you tell a practitioner who's unaware of any of this stuff and they freak out like, oh, my God, you're on DHEA. That's going to uh, it's going to cause cancer and, and it's going to cause you all these other side effects. I'm like, it does not work in the whole negative feedback mechanism. Like, it's not like taking DHEA is going to do the same thing like taking testosterone. It's not going to turn off your production. And I most of the time, guys, I just say, okay. Like whatever you say, boss, and I just let them go off on their rant, and there's no reason to argue with that. So I mean, that that's kind of a good place to jump in. So we we so like the topic of today, we'll be looking at kind of the sex hormones and, and you know how they're synthesizing their roles in the body and stuff like that. So I mean, when we think about those guys in general, they're all kind of starting in the same place in terms of how they're synthesizing. Cholesterol and, and, uh, and going into pregnenolone and stuff like that. So, I mean, do, would right. you be able to run us through how, how that whole, whole cascade works? Yeah, so pregnenolone is a mother hormone, right? And that's where we all start in making every single hormone in our body, right? 
cortisol, aldosterone, estrogen, progesterone, preg- uh, testosterone. Um, I probably missed quite a few there. Even cortisone, even all the metabolites, they all start from pregnenolone. And even before that, they start from cholesterol. So in order to make those things, you need cholesterol to make these hormones. Then depending on where you are in the body, uh, your gender, and the, um, the whole metabolic environment will depend on where those hormones will go. So for example, taking pregnenolone will probably drive more testosterone production in your testes, but in your adrenal glands, it'll push more to DHEA. Or in your adrenal glands, it'll push more to cortisol or you can even go to aldosterone. And then from there on out, it depends on where you are in the body, on how, what cascade um, is favored. And it really depends on, and the other aspect that I mentioned was the, the metabolic environment, right? And that really has a lot to do with macronutrients that you're taking. So for example, if you are a woman and you are taking pregnenolone, um, it'll probably get converted more into cortisol or estrogen than it would testosterone just because of the whole um, the metabolic environment with a female, right? And then how their body works. But even so, you have to also look at insulin levels. You have to look at what other hormones are actually working right now that will influence the enzymes that are responsible for carrying the pregnenolone to wherever it needs to go. So many men will ask me, well, you know, I want to take testosterone, but I don't want it to aromatize to estrogen. Well, that's going to happen. Like that's, that's inevitably going to happen because that's just the mechanism by which testosterone is metabolized. That you have enzymes and they're intended to do that. But insulin influences how much and how active those hormones are going to be. So insulin is a, um, and it induces aromatase enzyme. So when you, when you have men who are overweight, I have metabolic syndrome, right? The, their beer belly, uh, high body fat, low testosterone, it's likely because their insulin is so high, increasing more fat cells, which is then producing more estrogen because fat cells are what make estrogen. So it would probably be a mistake to give a really overweight man pregnenolone because it's probably going to go down that estrogen pathway instead of the testosterone pathway. So that's, where I, that's what I mean by looking at the metabolic environment. That was um, a pretty cool thing you mentioned with the, uh, the different areas that pregnenolone will obviously testes and even women in the ovaries is going to stimulate sex hormone production. And the, you know the adrenals is going to look to you know aldosterone and cortisol and things like that. Right. I suppose this is still on topic to some degree, but on that note, that whole pregnenolone. About is kind of flawed because you know, I'm not right thinking they're assuming that pregnenolone pathway is the same in both tissue and body. It's not. Yes, you're right, and that is a so I have a big. I get a lot of what's the word I'm looking for. I get a lot of experts, quote unquote experts, who will tell me, you know, I have adrenal fatigue, or I have, or this is the pregnenolone steal. And then I asked them a few questions and then I realized that they are not under, they don't understand the physiology of, of hormones. So the, the pregnenolone steel, um, 
what people think happens is that you, for your listeners who may not be familiar, pregnenolone steel is somebody who takes pregnenolone or their body takes pregnenolone and it converts it towards cortisol and away from testosterone and DHEA and aldosterone. That does happen if you have certain genetic conditions that impacts the enzymes that are responsible for um, making cortisol and making uh, aldosterone. So that's, that does happen. This is not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is people who are normally, who function normally and they're taking pregnenolone and they say it's going to cortisol. Well, this is how it works. Your adrenal glands are made up of three layers and then you have a medulla in the middle and it's made up of three layers. The first layer is salt, sugar, second layer is, uh, first layer is salt, second layer is sugar and the third layer is sex. So the first layer makes salt hormones, which is aldosterone. The second layer makes sugar hormones with it, which is cortisol. And the third layer, la- layer makes sex hormones, which is DHEA and um, testosterone. Testosterone typically occurs in the testes, but you can make some from your adrenals. So people think that, well, you take pregnenolone and the first layer and the second or the second layer, the, the sugar layer, right, that makes cortisol is going to steal all the pregnenolone from the third layer, not make DHEA, and then make cortisol. Well, each one of these layers has a different activity of the particular enzymes. So for me to say, I'm going to give you pregnenolone and it's going to take from this particular layer and move it to another one, there, there's no way that that can happen because there's, there's a barrier. It, each, each layer has a different set of enzymes. It's just, it's not possible. So, but what actually does happen is you have enzymes in each layer, which can be upregulated or downregulated based on genetics and based on stressors. So if you are stressed out and you take pregnenolone, it's not that it's taking away from making DHEA, it's that you're so f- stressed out that if your body's gonna, those enzymes to make cortisol are gonna be increased, they're gonna be ramped up, and you're gonna make more cortisol than you actually want to. That doesn't mean it's taking away from DHEA, it doesn't mean it's taking away from aldosterone, because if that were the case, then we'd probably just be a bunch of dysfunctional human beings walking around and having, you know, urinating way too much or not enough and holding out a bunch of fat. Like you would see the issues of aldosterone before you would see the issues of, of DHEA and people don't, they, they don't understand that. So it's funny. I just posted today on one of my posts and I said, uh, the resource is any physiology textbook. And it's just, it, it, it's surprising because people just don't understand the physiology of it. And it's so simple. It really is. But I guess I, I expect too much from some people. It's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a damn good explanation. So, like, there's going to be a lot of people out there that, um, you know, have, have, uh, well, I know of a lot of people that have been kind of preaching the pregnenolone steel for a long time. And, um, yeah. So in terms of like where these, you know, this this synthesis of of DHEA and all that stuff occurs, and eventually testosterone. Am I mm-hmm. thinking this is all taking place in, in the mitochondria of, of cells, like adrenal cells? Or yeah. So um, you, we we spoke about this before. 
the mitochondria are the powerhouse of a cell, but that's also where you make these hormones. So when somebody tells me I have mitochondrial dysfunction, I, I certainly believe them. And that's certainly possible. It definitely does occur. We know there are uh, aspects where, you know, the mitochondria are not functioning properly. And if your mitochondria are not working well, then there might be an issue in how you make hormones because there's something on the mitochondria called uh, STAR receptor, the star receptor. And in order for your, your cells to make that hormone, that star receptor, and I say that hormone, I mean, whatever, whatever, like in, in the ovaries, the mitochondria tend to make more estrogen and progesterone. In your testes, they make more testosterone. In your adrenal glands, they make you know the adrenal hormones. If when you stimulate that that receptor, it then goes ahead and makes all of these hormones. Now, if that and it's and it's a cascade, so it, it binds to the outside of the cell and then sends a signal inside. So it's kind of like you know you, you it's it's like you a domino effect. You flick one domino, and in order to get that last domino to fall, there's a bunch of different steps I need to go on. Uh, with a bunch of special names that I, I wouldn't bore your listeners with. But what happens is that that mitochondria is activated and it makes the whatever hormone that it needs to make. And we spoke about this. You said, well, would it make sense that if somebody's mitochondrial dysfunction that their hormone synthesis would be compromised? Yeah, that makes sense. Biochemically, that makes sense. On a, um, on a molecular biology level, yes, it does. The hardest part is how do you measure that? You can't, it's like, um, have you heard of uh, autophagy or some people call it autophagy, right? We know it happens. We know it's important. Um, it's probably going to impact the next 15 to 20 years of medicine until we can actually understand what's going on, but we still can't measure it. Now, just because we can't measure it does not mean it's not happening and it does not mean that we cannot influence it. I'm going to do whatever I possibly can to influence it and make sure that those things are functioning optimally. And if I could measure it, I would love to see if what I'm doing is helping, but I, I can't. So we have to assume that improving mitochondrial function is going to improve hormonal synthesis. And like, so I suppose like breaking down for people that aren't aware of, you know, the, the energy production process through, you know, glycolysis and electrolysis. Mm -hmm. That the, you know, ways we could look at supporting mitochondrial function from a basic nutritional perspective would be something like better than B vitamins. I think basically. Like yeah. Yeah. So, so the mitochondria rely on the, I'm sure people remember the electron transport chain and glycolysis and pyruvate dehydrogenase and, um, Oxidative phosphorylation. I'm pretty sure if anybody's been through like high school biology, this is something that they tell us to learn. And the Krebs cycle or the uh, TCA cycle um, or acetyl-CoA cycle, sometimes it's called. All of those enzymes require particular amino acids and particular nutrients. Coenzyme Q10 is a complex in the electron transport chain. It is absolutely necessary in order for us to make energy, in order for us to make ATP. So CoQ10, absolutely one tool that we can use to improve mitochondrial function. Um, one of the newer, uh, one of the more recent researches on something called PQQ, 
which is found in a lot of uh, CoQ10 products. I see that to be more effective for cognitive function. So PQQ is more for improving brain function, mitochondrial function in the brain. But I'm assuming if it works in the brain, it has to work in the rest of the body, right? So then other things you want to look at are um, L-carnitine, acetyl L-carnitine, which can... um, so I like to use acetyl-L-carnitine because it's, it's more readily uh, bioavailable. And carnitine is responsible for bringing fat inside of the cell, inside of the mitochondria to be utilized as energy. So you look at carnitine as a, as a great um, nutrient. I look at NAC. Why would I want to use NAC in mitochondria? Well, where does that work into the Krebs cycle? Where does that work into the ATP cycle? Where uh, oxidative phosphorylase? It doesn't. It's not part of that. Why would I use it? Because your mitochondria are the number one source of your, um, we call them ROS, or reactive oxidative species. Your mitochondria are oxidizing powerhouses. They make so many oxidants that they need antioxidants. And this is something that people really just don't, they really overlook. And I might be getting into the weeds here, right? And people are just like, Ralph, you're going way too deep into this. Like, shut the fuck up. You don't know what you're doing. Right? You're just way too, like, like stop sciencing out on me. And I'm like, look, this is not bro science. Here, I'm like, pick up a textbook. Here, look at this textbook. Look at any study. We know that a mitochondria cause oxidative damage. That is why autophagy is so protective and might prolong life because we're reducing how, much, how many oxidative species are being created in the mitochondria. NAC is essential for making glutathione. Well... What are the body's top three antioxidants? SOD, in this order, SOD, catalase, and glutathione. We can't make, we can't, um, we can't supplement SOD, we can't supplement catalase. We can supplement zinc and molybdenum, uh, I'm sorry, manganese for, um, for SOD because those are cofactors, but we can also give NAC, and NAC is necessary to make glutathione. You know, some people may also supplement with glutathione directly. I like to use liposomal glutathione um, just so it enhances the absorption. But let's support the mitochondria in that aspect. And then we could, then we're not even talking, guys, we're not even talking about sleep. We're not even talking about food. We're not even talking about whether you smoke or probably one of the worst things that you can do is drink and smoke. Like alcohol creates aldehydes that is what damages your body people think like alcohol is what's the problem no you don't get a hangover from alcohol you get a hangover from the aldehydes that is made from alcohol dehydrogenase so again i'm really like into it with you guys but it's i i hope your listeners can hear like how excited i am very, very important. Um, and I think um, there's going to be a lot of people out there that kind of definitely underplay the, the benefit of supporting mitochondria, and especially when when we consider, you know, in the realm of, of physique development and, and um, like muscle building, you know, they're playing yeah. in, in performance in the gym and whatever you're thinking, you know, which muscle fiber types are going to be most abundant in mitochondria as well, and you look at like the Type one slower twitch muscle fibers that are more improving aerobic capacity, and then people out there that are scared about doing aerobic work because they think they're going to lose muscle and they're not nurturing the tissue that's going to be right. abundant in, in mitochondria. 
I, I want to make one point for anybody who is skeptical. If you, where you will see the most benefit from mitochondrial support is the elderly and people with dementia or Alzheimer's or some type of neurological dysfunction. If you support their mitochondria, you'll see their cognitive function improve. You'll see symptoms decrease. You'll see energy improve. You'll see improvements in, um, or improvements in, in muscle synthesis. So they become less sarcopenic. That's where you see the most benefit. It, sometimes you need to study the people who are just so effed up to realize how good this stuff works. And I'm not in the game of like life is a game to me, right? And it's kind of a sick way of looking at it. But the name of the game is live as long as you can and live as well as you can. So I don't want to be that, you know, 80, 90 year old guy who's like, it's like, shit, where are my keys? Where are my keys? Where are my keys? You know, or forgets the name of their grandchildren. That happens now, guys. Like, people who are, who are our age or younger, that's where it starts. Not when you're 40. I mean, 40 and 50, great idea to start. Um, it's never too late to start, but it starts now. And that's where you'll see most of it is when those people are really, you know, like deteriorated. So, I mean, that, that, that makes me think as well. We're talking about mitochondria and the, the prevalence of statins and, and the impact that those guys are going to have on our ability to synthesize independently. And um, I mean, what, what are your views on, on that? Right. So, so statins, they inhibit an enzyme called HMG-CoA reductase, right? And that is an essential um, enzyme in order to make CoQ10 but it's also an essential enzyme to make cholesterol. So, you know, the research actually does not support the fact that statins um, cause cognitive decline in terms of looking at all of the research, and it's wholesome. We don't see that statins cause dementia. They don't cause um, uh, Alzheimer's, right? That's not what we're seeing. But if you overdo it then you are you may be putting somebody at risk and and it depends if they're already at a risk so the way we measure that is you can look at the biomarkers or the precursors to make desmosterol so if you have cholesterol here right and uh, coq10 uh, the hmg coa reductase is in the middle and you need to to you want to inhibit that you can measure the marker or a marker called desmosterol and desmosterol is a precursor to uh, cholesterol. And if that gets too low, then you might be concerned about reducing cholesterol synthesis to a point where the body may not have enough raw material. So I don't think, I, and also, by the way, anybody who prescribes a statin, whether it's natural like red yeast rice or uh, pharmaceutical should always be on CoQ10. I put them on ubiquinol, should always be on that. Um, but you want to just play it safe. So just why not give them CoQ10 and make sure that they're getting enough fats in their diet to support their other functions that fats are needed for.
Yeah, I mean, but also you have to think about like this, like what kills people? Heart disease kills people, right? So if you're trying to, it doesn't matter how effective or how long your mitochondria live if your heart goes out first, right? Like you could be super strong, super fit, like for your whole life, but if your heart gives out, it doesn't matter, nothing else works, right? So you have to make sure your heart's healthy and your vascular system is healthy first. Um, and that should be, you know, you need to prioritize. So let's um, jump forward then. So, uh, so, you know, we, we've gone through where testosterone is synthesized in, in the mitochondria. Obviously, we get DHEA and from you know, DHEA is the precursor to testosterone. It is. There's many others as well, but it's one of the major ones. And that's one of the major ones we see on lab. I'm sorry? We'll see on lab work. Like DHEA will be one of the major ones. Yeah, DHEAS. You want to make sure it's DHEAS, right? Because if you check just DHEA, the half-life of that, um, does it, it's not a good representation of what is actually flowing around in the blood. So you check DHEAS. You can also check androstenedione which is a precursor to testosterone as well. So if, if I see somebody's testosterone is low, sometimes you can check androstenedione, but unfortunately you don't supplement that. So I look at DHEAS. Yeah. So let's, let's say we've got, we got to testosterone now. So what are the, cause there's a lot of people and there's a lot of people that are listening to our podcast that, um, you know, self-administered <laughs> testosterone, and, um, you know, for the, for the purpose of physique enhancement, there'll be a lot of people out there that maybe have been put on testosterone because they've got low testosterone, but not actually a lot of people understand what it does um, mm -hmm. in its actual world in the body. So, I mean, would you be able to actually shed some light on, on testosterone's functions and, um, and like what people are actually playing with it? Yeah. So do you want to know like the good things about testosterone or, or how, or how people can just like mess it up and not use it right? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking like just in a, you know, even just without, if we, if we are supplement, you know, or administering exogenous hormone, like what, what is endogenous testosterone can do um, with the, but then, yeah, I mean, what happens when people like mess it up? Yeah, so I just posted on this today. If you do it for too long, it'll really mess you up. If you do testosterone for too long, do not cycle properly. Do not come off it properly. Um, do not support the body properly in terms of inhibiting aromatization. You will shut down your hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. Like that is not uh, an argument. It will turn off your brain and making LH and FSH. And if you, well, number one, it does that no, no matter what. Like even if you're on it for two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, two years, it'll do that. The question is, is how quickly can you recover? So we know that it'll shut that down. Um, well, if you're on- you Just give a clarification on what LH and FSH are. Sure, sure, sure. So LH is luteinizing hormone and FSH is uh, follicle stimulating hormone. And it's actually, um, it makes more sense when you look at it if, on a female uh, physiology because luteinizing hormone helps a woman um, with their luteal phase of, of their cycle and the follicle stimulating hormone 
Um, well, both of them help with, but there's a follicular phase and luteal phase, right? That's why it makes sense more so on women. But in men, uh, LH is what directly stimulates what we call the Leydig cells of the testes to make testosterone, where FSH impacts the Sertoli cells to uh, induce spermatogenesis or to make sperm. The Sertoli cells and the Leydig cells, they both rely on each other. And they're important because in order for you to make sperm, you need testosterone. And it's funny because um, FSH, when it's very high, will stimulate SHBG. I'm throwing all these acronyms at you guys. Sex hormone binding globulin, right? So you can have a ton of testosterone, but if your SHBG is very high, it binds to all that testosterone and makes it less available, right? So FSH, when it's very high, it will stimulate SHBG, um, but there's a lot of other factors that will impact SHBG production, but FSH is, is one of them. So um, that's why when men are on testosterone, they usually notice, how do I put this? Decrease in volume of their testicles. So basically their balls shrink, right? Why does that happen? Well, you need testosterone um, you need LH and FSH in order to make sperm. If your body's getting ex uh, excess uh, testosterone from a different source, which is not from its own body, it tells the brain, all right, we don't really need to make any more testosterone, turn off your LH and FSH. And then that also makes men infertile, right? Now, now there are men who are, are on testosterone and they do, um, they are able to impregnate and that's not unheard of, that does happen. Uh, but you have to understand over a long period of time, it'll turn that off. And if you do it way too long without stopping or cycling, then that becomes permanent. And that is a big problem, especially for younger men, or which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, that they want to optimize their body. The worst thing you can do is go to this guy who thinks he knows what the hell he's doing and saying, yeah, just go on testosterone for you know six months to a year and you'll get jacked and ripped and you know, you'll be good. Okay, well, what about after that? Right. And then what about if you don't um, account for the estrogen that is made from the conversion of testosterone to estrogen? Well, now you start getting gynecomastia, right? Which is fish tits, man boobs, right? And then you start getting emotional. So they start crying during movies and they're like, oh my God, this, I, I lost my dog. I'm really sad. And they start crying and they get really sensitive or they sometimes get really um, agitated. Like that whole thing where like, testosterone causes you to get like really angry and road rage, void rage. I don't believe that's actually true. I just think that people who are angry people, testosterone is just going to amp them up a little bit more. Right. Um, so that's what testosterone does. The problem is, is that we have no research on supraphysiologic levels of testosterone. You want to know the best research? And I'm grateful for these researchers and I call them researchers more experimenters, are bodybuilders. These guys, like, they know what the hell they're doing, okay? And they do it for a long, they've been doing this for a long period of time. I mean, like, Arnold and Ronnie, right? Like, all of these, these um, uh, legends, right? They knew what they were doing, but now we know more. And this, when you um, go on testosterone for way too long, you you mess up the whole rhythm, so um, and and again you know bodybuilders these days are doing a lot of other things as well like insulin and 
growth hormone and um, uh, clenbuterol, right? A bunch of different things. But those are people you can experiment with and you can see, you know, these are the guys that are on testosterone for a long period of time. But in the research, there is no test, there's no research that I have seen that shows the long-term effects of um, supra-physiologic testosterone levels. So that means we take men who have low testosterone levels and bring them up to normal levels. That's fine. We know what that does. But we don't have research on taking guys with normal testosterone levels and then bringing up to very high levels. We don't know all of the benefits or detriments of that. But we have an idea from bodybuilders, which I'm sure you guys have seen firsthand with, I'm sure, a lot of your clients and uh, friends and colleagues. You're in that whole realm. If you need somebody to guide you on that, I know, like, I always, it's funny that you mentioned that. Like, I read all these studies, I'm like, these dummies need to just email me and just like, Ralph, what should we study? Like, I have so many things that I want people to study. I just, it costs a lot of money. So I'm just hoping that that can happen. I'm sure there are people that, 100%, yeah. yeah. But, but I, I, know, I, I know that there are people that, um, like there's bodybuilders in the UK that are doing like master's degrees and stuff like that, that I think they've, they've tried to get sign, you know, the person to sign off on them being able to do that. I think it just came down to the ethics of it. Uh, yeah. But I can understand that. I can understand that. But it would be frowned upon. Like, for example, like, would it be frowned upon if we didn't do research on other drugs that people are doing uncontrolled? Like, if we never researched marijuana, we would be completely lost right now. Right? It, it's, it's kind of like a similar, as, if you look at it, it's very similar to testosterone. We, we're not really sure of the long-term detriments. We know it's pretty benign short-term. Um, we know CBD has a lot of other benefits. So if it's not immoral to study marijuana, right? I don't think it should be immoral or unethical to, to study testosterone over long periods of time. Plus, it has so much upside. Like It can improve and fight off dementia and Alzheimer's. It can improve muscle mass. It can maybe fight off insulin resistance, fight diabetes. It can prevent osteoporosis and sarcopenia. Like people, old people die from falling, right? Like if we can stop that from happening, we're saving a lot of money because when somebody falls and they go into the hospital, I mean, it's different in the UK, you know, because your medical system is a little bit different. But in the US, that costs our government and insurance companies a lot of money because they're in the hospital, they can't walk, then you start figuring out that their heart's all messed up. I mean, hey, if anybody wants to do the research, I would be happy to consult and be like, this is how you want to design it because it needs to be done. Yeah. But it costs a lot of money. It's crazy. Yeah. So, so in terms of testosterone and then obviously the pathways that can take, um, well, what are the implications with regards to yeah, androgen receptor stimulation and and and, thing, and then the role that DHT will play in that in terms of how testosterone will eventually or potentially convert down to that and, and those two. Right. So testosterone is converted into estrogen and it can be converted into DHT. Now that's where a lot of people just stop. It's like okay, it could go to these two pathways. No, 
it actually trickles down. There's other pathways after that. So DHTA can, DHT can be converted into something called 3-beta-diol or 3-alpha-diol. Those are what typically bind significantly to the androgen receptors. So DHT is um, significant, it has a significantly higher affinity for androgen receptors. So that's why a lot of men, when they, have, they start losing their hair or they have an enlarged prostate, they give them 5-alpha um, uh, reductase inhibitors, which are DHT blockers. They prevent your body from making DHT. So then they start, you know, uh, their prostate may shrink or may not. Uh, research is a little bit conflicting there because there are some people who have large prostates and they don't have an issue. Um, and then it, help, it does help with hair loss. So, okay, so we know that. But you have to look at the metabolites, right? Because those metabolites of DHT can also bind to estrogen receptors. So I actually wrote about this in one of the te uh, textbook chapters that should be coming out quite soon, the textbook of natural medicine. Um, I have a chapter on there on BPH. Uh, my, I'm, it's co-authored with Dr. Gio Espinosa and Dr. Michael Murray. And I, I wrote a particular section in there. And I like when I found this out, guys, I was so excited. I was just like, holy shit. Like, this is good information because... In order for the prostate to grow, or in order for these androgen receptors to be stimulated, or what they, um, sort in order for the negative effects of these these hormones, they bind to estrogen receptors. So DHT can bind to estrogen as well, estrogen receptors as well. So there's estrogen receptor alpha and there's estrogen receptor uh, beta. The beta is the good receptor. It's anti-proliferative. It prevents your pros your prostate or other cells from multiplying uncontrollably whereas alpha does not. So alpha can cause the cell to continuously to grow. That's why we see a lot of issues in breast cancer because it's these estrogen receptors, okay? That's why when you block estrogen, those receptors are less activated. But in men, DHT metabolites can also bind to them. So you want to have high, the, the beta metabolite will bind more to the uh, ESR beta and cause more down, downward effects. Okay, great, good story, Ralph. Like, okay, so what does that mean? Well, that means you have to control how much DHT the body makes because I can't control where the DHT goes after that, but I, but which is also controlled by 5-alpha and 5-beta reductase enzymes. But I can control how much DHT is being made. And how can you control that? Well, there's 5-alpha uh, reductase inhibitors. There's also salt palmetto, which we suspect is a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. Zinc can inhibit that enzyme. So there's a lot of different aspects that you have to look at and try to understand what are we actually doing. So when people look at just one hormone, I just get so frustrated because that's not how the body works. So how can you expect to just manipulate one hormone or one system and expect it to have like a miraculous result? The body's smart. The body is so, so fascinatingly smart. It will outsmart you. It would outdo you. Like don't even try it. So you have, to, you have to be one step ahead. And that's why I use a, a multifactorial approach or um, you, basically you want to hit it from multiple different angles. And if you hit it from multiple different angles at low doses, you give the body, like your, the, the body wants to go one way and you're like, oh, wait, nope, block that way off. It wants to go another way. Nope, I block that way off. And that's how you can really um, manipulate and optimize your, your function, which is a lot, really hard to do, really, really hard to do. So I, I suppose, like speaking of uh, optimizing function, then what are the what's the? I know you're a big fan of sleep. You've already covered that. So what what does sleep role 
what, what is, how does sleep play a role in like testosterone synthesis and, and, and what are the things we want to consider there? You need, okay, so if you're on exogenous testosterone, like bodybuilders, they recover very, very well because they're on growth hormone and they're on testosterone. So testosterone and growth hormone are essential for recovery. So how do I, when I see it, when I think about that, I'm like, okay, well, how do I do that naturally in the body? And the phase of sleep, deep sleep or slow wave sleep is the phase of sleep where we release the most growth hormone. And when we release the most FSH and LH. So when you release the hormones that are responsible to tell your body to make more testosterone and make more growth hormone, how do you get more deep sleep? Well, that's really hard to do. You have to, I, I don't know how I did it. I use an aura ring, which assesses um, your sleep stages. My, my deep sleep is like amazing. I'm getting like two and a half, three hours nightly. I don't know how I do it, but I'll tell you what I do. And maybe that, that helps. Adaptogens. I try to reduce the cortisol response. I mean, I'm not going to like, like sugarcoat everything. Like, no, you, you can't be stressed. Like stress happens. Stress is real. But there's good stress and there's bad stress. And there's perception of stress. So I try to do things to help with my perception of stress because that will impact how much or how well you sleep. So I use adaptogens. Adaptogens can be really helpful, like ashwagandha, rhodiola, relora, magnolia. Um, theanine is really helpful. Meditation is a staple. Because meditation, it impacts how your brain waves function, right? So it can reduce cortisol levels, it changes brain waves. So we want to get the body, the brain, in a habit of understanding, oh, this is what deep sleep should be like. Let me try to go that pathway. And I don't think we, we can absolutely say we understand it completely, but we do know that more deep sleep, better recovery, more hormone synthesis, and, um, and in the end, that means more testosterone, more growth hormone, uh, less estrogen, less cortisol. And that's really the name of the game. And I imagine it would be like one of the, the main reasons why we, you know, these enhanced bodybuilders have such a, you know, an advantage over non-enhanced uh, non athletes because, let's say, the, the, the natural physique athlete has a crap night's sleep there and they don't get any deep sleep, they potentially correct their testosterone yeah. growth hormone production, whereas the, you know, the yeah they don't need like they're gonna make it no matter what or they're gonna get it no matter what that's why they can train like crazy six seven days a week i mean that's um i mean do, do you have any like data on, on how how bad like one a bad night's sleep can affect someone's testosterone levels naturally yeah, absolutely, I do. The, there, there was one study, it's one of my favorite studies. They took two groups of men, um, and they sleep-deprived one group, or they had the same group of men. Uh, first, they sleep-deprived them, and they saw that what that did to their testosterone levels, and it was very clear it dropped their testosterone levels. They took that same group of men and um, gave them exogenous testosterone, they said, okay, now we can get their testosterone up even though they're sleep deprived. And then they had another group of men. They sleep deprived them. And then they 
made them like four to five hours of sleep. Then they actually allowed them to have seven to eight hours of sleep. And getting seven to eight hours of sleep was equivalent to giving them exogenous testosterone. Yeah, right? It, it brought their levels up to an equal amount to those who were getting exogenous testosterone. Now, mind you, they were not giving these guys 500. Yeah, right? yeah. they were not giving these guys like 500 milligrams of testosterone, right? They were giving them a, um, a, a physiological equivalent to what they should be, right? And sleep was as effective at, at doing that. And they felt better. They had better quality of life when they slept better. Like just giving somebody testosterone does not mean they're going to feel better. Like I want to get this out of your heads and all of your listeners' heads. Like testosterone is not like the holy grail. Like once I get on some testosterone, I'm going to be cut and jacked and I'm going to feel amazing and I'm going to be strong and like I'm going to fly. It's like, yeah, it's going to make you feel better, but there's a lot of other shit going on in your life that you have to correct too. And like testosterone what was that? Everything else is still broken around it, so stuff's got to be addressed. Yeah, like it's not going to make your marriage better. Like it's not going to like make your bank account look better. It's not going to fix the things that freak people out or stress people out all the time. It's not going to make you eat better. They, people may eat better because they're like, I'm not paying for all this testosterone, and then gonna eat McDonald's, right? But it's not like. It, it's not going to like make you jacked and cut. It, it will help, but you need to do the other things as well. I had an argument when, when I was growing up. My friends were like, um, oh man, what is his name? He was Mr. Olympia. Jeez, I can't remember his name. Blonde hair. Um, what was it? Yes, Jay Cutler. And my friends, we were arguing and they're like, well, he's not an athlete. Like, he, he just took steroids. I'm like, do you really think that this man just took steroids and won Mr. Olympia? Like, you really think that that's all he did? Like, everybody works out the same, right? Like, everybody puts, everybody puts in the same effort, and it just so happens that, you know, he took testosterone and got better. Like, you are dumb as shit. Like, really. Like, that is not how it works. You need to work your ass off. It is not easy, right? Like, if you gave me testosterone, I, I've never taken it. But if you, if I started taking testosterone... I probably would not look like Jay Cutler. I would not, right? It's just not going to happen. I probably look better. I'd get bigger, I'd get stronger. Um, and everything that I'm doing now would just be multiplied, but it doesn't make you a Jay Cutler. It doesn't make you a, you know, in a, in a performance athlete. Like people argue like Barry Bonds and a lot of these American athletes took steroids and that's why they were amazing. Like that's why they shouldn't be in the hall of fame. Like you like Roger Clemens and Andy Pettit and all these other athletes. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with them or, or your listeners in the UK are familiar with these American baseball players, but these people still needed to throw a baseball. They still needed to hit a hundred mile an hour baseball. Like testosterone is not going to make you do that. So just want to make sure your listeners are very, very clear on that. Like don't go ahead and think I'm going to start testosterone and be Superman. Like, no, it doesn't work like that. I was as well. When we are talking about the, estrogen related side effects and you know you get some people where you know they you know they take testosterone and they control the aromatization too much and then they end up with like low estrogen yeah uh, and I mean, one of the things we consider that you know, I think you 
spoken about before where it can kind of like mood swings and, and like erectile dysfunction from the low estrogen. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so when levels are very low, it can uh, actually impact erections and libido. I like the magic number to between uh, 15 and 35, um, closer to 30. Once you, get start, once you start getting above those levels, we know, we know that there's a, a very strong correlation with decreased body composition and increased body fat. When you get very low, I only treat very low levels if they're symptomatic. But if you have chronic low estrogen levels, long periods of time, you also have to understand that estrogen has a protective value for connective tissue, has a protective value for your blood vessels. It has a protective value for your skin, um, your brain function, right? Like you need a balance. So there's this whole persona. It's like more testosterone, less estrogen. Yes, if you want to look at it broadly, but you need to individualize it. And, and especially for women. And by the way, there are women who take testosterone and, you know, female bodybuilders, like they take testosterone, they take exogenous hormones. They are not healthy. Like they don't, like they lose their period. Like that's just not a normal physiological function. So, you know, low testosterone levels will have those, those detriments. Um, uh, and then when it gets too low or sometimes even too high, they can get very moody or emotional. Um, you know, movies make them tear up and, you know, their girlfriend beats them up, like stuff like that. What, what about from the perspective of uh, a female taking anti-aromatizing drugs? Is that, is that bad? As in like, what does the repercussions of that from a physiological perspective? Oh my God. Well, you're totally reversing what the body wants to do. The body wants to have, a female body wants to have estrogen. It needs estrogen in order to nourish her uterus, nourish her ovaries her endothelial function, her bone tissue, um, her connective tissue. When that gets very, very low, I, this is not like, I, I'm not exaggerating here. Most women who do that have a very difficult time conceiving in the future. Uh, so having a baby in the future and also re-regulating their cycle. It is very, very hard to get back on that rhythm. The female hormonal system is so delicate. It is much more delicate than the male hormonal system. Because there's like it varies per day, guys. Like we are lucky. Our hormones are pretty consistent, like Monday to Friday, or Monday to Sunday, right? It's just pretty straightforward. For women, it varies on a day-to-day -day basis. So when you mess it up and you're having low estrogen, and that's why the, the birth control is is almost equally as detrimental, right? Because you're telling the brain don't make estrogen, and then you get women who get off birth control and they have all of these symptoms. Well, yeah. That makes sense because you shut down your body synthesis. And the same thing happens with uh, or, uh, like Arimidex or anti-aromatase enzymes and or drugs in women. I think from a, from a coaching perspective, especially with more of a holistic approach, the menstrual cycle and rega regaining control of a woman's sexual health from a, a client coaching perspective has been, has been fascinating. Um, yep. Just because of our ability to control so many variables and then seeing Repeating these 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 different elements together and bringing out that longer term, longer term goal. Um, like it's just it's pretty interesting to see. There's yeah. A, so so what do you usually see? Like what do they tell you? Um, like there was a there was a girl. I'll, I'll keep everything confidential. But there was a girl uh, who came on board last year, female, um, who'd run multiple competition preps, 
uh, menstrual cycle was lost for years. Like there wasn't any consistent cycle for, for two or three years. Um, she was using exogenous hormones and it took us just over 12 months uh, to, to regain control of the cycle and now is fertile in that environment as well um, and ready to conceive. But just the, the, the ability for us to actually take control of the situation has taken over a year of putting these things in place before anything happened. Yeah, and I want it's a really good point that you made there. Look, it took a year to correct that. How many people want to wait a year to get better? Nobody. They want two weeks, three weeks. It's not, it's not going to happen. And that's why I tell uh, most of my clients, people who I educate, I'm like, do not expect this to work overnight. Don't even expect this to work in two weeks, three weeks. This takes months because you didn't get here overnight. The hormonal system is an art. Hormones and endocrinology is an art. It is not like cardiology, cardiology is like you give this drug and the cholesterol goes down. It's not like oncology and primary care where you give an antibiotic and like, okay, you kill the bacteria. This is hormones are completely, it's a completely different animal. And it's hard for people to appreciate that, but it, that's real. Like it's, it's hard to manage. And you see it firsthand, like look, 12 months for her to just to, to get to a normal cycle and to conceive like that you, I'm, I'm sure you had a, modify and adjust a million different things with her like it wasn't just like do this for 12 months and you'll be good like it's like okay well you got better now you probably hit a plateau like readjust like i'm sure you had to go through all that it's, it's even like the susceptibility for a, a female client in that situation to be so susceptible to stress as well it's stress it's playing such a massive impact on what's going on so it's yeah addressing things and one one variable would completely turn off again um, it's just, it's like you said, the, the word fragile is the perfect one. Kind of it's a very delicate system. To kind of make it into one, one term. Absolutely right. I'm glad you guys see this. Like, I can tell you, like, all the geeky stuff about it, but it's really you guys who are putting this into work and you see this on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, like you, ha you help these people daily, right? Like, you're coaching people. You, you don't just talk to them once, like, okay, well, come see me in three months, right? It's, it's, it's very hands-on work. And you, if you see it, that's an, like, again, like we could publish this stuff and be like, look, these are case studies, real deal stuff. Like we, I don't make this up. So let's, so let's say we've got another story that I've never seen this, but I know you will have something to say on this. Um, you, you have someone who has undergone a load of contest preps and they've been you know, hypercaloric in their, in their calorie intake for a lot of time and, and as a result of that like hypo um, hypocaloric intake there you know they've had a down regulation of thyroid or something like that. yeah what's the because i know there's an interplay between thyroid production and testosterone um like what, what, what would you have to say on that yeah so fasting will shut down your thyroid makes perfect sense right hypocaloric diet will over time slow down your thyroid function if it's significantly hypocaloric, right? So um, your thyroid is, so I, I look at your thyroid as like the engine that makes your lytic cells run. Your lytic cells require thyroid hormone. Like you can have all of the DHEA, you can have all of the hormones in order to make testosterone and you just need the, testosterone, the thyroid hormone to just press the switch and, and needs to press the go button or the start button. 
that's how that's how testosterone works. Excuse me, that's how thyroid hormone works in elytic cells, and they work on again another multiple different pathways. Something called cyclic AMP, and uh, it's a second messenger cascade. Would actually will send the message to the nucleus to your DNA and say, okay, let's start churning out more proteins to make more testosterone. You need adequate thyroid function in order for those things to work properly. If you do not have proper thyroid function, the hormones endogenously will not work optimally. And the thyroid hormone is, is also responsible for metabolism, right? So we know testosterone can improve body composition, but it really does require thyroid hormone to actually improve metabolic function. So it's such an intricate system so that when, you know, endocrinologists, they're just like, I got to fix your thyroid. Like I've never heard an endocrinologist say, you know what? I know you have low testosterone levels, but your thyroid's messed up. I'm going to fix your thyroid first because then we'll see what happens to your testosterone. That is very rare. And, and I have seen endocrinologists, some endocrinologists do that. I'm like, like I applaud them. I'm like, wow, like that is an awesome thought because you oftentimes cannot fix the hypogonadism unless you correct the thyroid. It's, they're so connected. So, so, I mean, would there be, I haven't actually seen this in research, you know, have the, you know bodybuilders that are abusing um, thyroid hormone and then yeah. cycle, would, would that, would, is there a negative feedback loop there that could then shut down natural thyroid production that would then prevent them from re-establishing um, like normal age producing function? You're saying so if they chronically abuse thyroid hormone, will it turn off their thyroid function? So temporarily, yes, it will. It, like you take exogenous thyroid hormone and your thyroid will not make enough thyroid hormone, right? Your thyroid will not make enough thyroid hormone. Um, we see that less so. The, the, denture, the thyroid is much easier to recover because TSH is much more sensitive. But um, I would hope that they're getting checked to make sure that their TSH doesn't drop too low. And usually the magic number... Uh, you don't want TSH to below drop below maybe like 0.5, and you don't want it to go above 2.0 or 2.5. And I'm not sure what measurements you guys you use in the UK. Uh, I can't recall what measurement that is in in the in our US measurement system. But when when TSH drops too low over song uh, over a long period of time, it will suppress the thyroid. But I'm more concerned with unmanaged hypothyroidism than hyperthyroidism. But again, hyperthyroidism or you know, taking too much thyroid hormone will actually impact your bone density. It can have other detriments as well, palpitations, um, you know, increased anxiety, mania. So those are, those are things that you want to pay attention to as well. But I don't typically see it shut down as much as you would with the thyro- uh, testosterone system. Sure. Lots of people that are relieved to know that. But I think it's, it's yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you would see this, this the amount of people that are going around cases of hypothyroid. Absolutely, it's so much more common than people think. So, like, I mean, if anything, that's more of a concern for these these natural competitors that are putting themselves through competition preps and not having the resources to support them. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. It, you can't look at just one system. It would it would be foolish.
So if an unassisted bodybuilder, male or female, from the perspective of regaining control of endogenous thyroid production, your the first steps in your mind, obviously increasing caloric intake and getting him in a position where stress is less, the stress is lower. What else is there that we could do in that scenario? So, and this is assuming they're not competing right now. Yeah, so they're they're out of they're out of show season. This is now what what we'd call an off season, or there's taking time away from the stage, um, recovering. Um, right. You know, under the premise that calories are being increased, energy balance getting energy balance is getting to a more uh, conducive environment for them to actually be in a in a position where the body's in a in a recovered state, and body weight is creeping up a little bit. What would the other key considerations be there for us? Yes. Yeah, so you have to really understand what, what diet is working best for them. When I see people who are gaining weight and thyroid, I mean, number one, okay, number one, you have to make sure that their thyroid is, we call it euthyroid. So that's number one. We're assuming that that's the case. Their thyroid's okay. Um, or it's maybe not as, as, uh, as optimal as we would like it, as we would like it to be. You want to look at, make sure they're getting enough of the nutrients to make thyroid hormones. So selenium, zinc, iodine, vitamin A, those are all essential to make, uh, iron is all essential to make thyroid hormones. So you want to provide the environment for it to do that. Then you want to provide adaptogens. And there, ashwagandha is an exceptional thyroid adaptogen, has been great in treating subclinical hypothyroidism. So you look at, at, at adaptogens and trying to re-regulate that system. Well, how do we not get it to be worse? Uh, avoid fasting, right? So fasting, people can fast, but still not be hypocaloric, right? So a lot of people do time-restricted feeding, you know, intermittent fasting. I would probably advise somebody to not do that every day if they have a thyroid issue because it creates a caloric deficit. And um, we see this in Ramadan studies where men are not eating from sunrise to sunset. And by the end of the uh, Ramadan, their thyroid starts becoming sluggish and their testosterone levels start dropping. So we see that clinically. So how do you correct it? Well, make sure you're eating on a regular schedule, but again, not eating too late before bed. Um, support them with adaptogens, support them with the essential nutrients. And you know, really to be honest is trying to avoid any type of radiation to the area, try to keep the thyroid healthy, um, you know, I'm not saying that fluoride is causes hypothyroid issues, but we do know that it can interfere with iodine receptors. So I tell people don't stop brushing with, you know, fluoridated toothpaste, but maybe get filtered water so that you're, you're not getting a lot of the fluoride in there, which may or may not be an issue, but there is some evidence that it could be problematic. I, I would say, let's just, uh, let's, let's vary on the side of caution and just optimize function in that aspect. Is like we have a lot of natural competitors that listen to this this show, so they'll be yeah, really keen to hear that. Um, I, I mean, yeah. if you've looked into it, I'm sure you have. Um, but in terms of the effect that the you know chronic dieting periods like these you know these natural bodybuilding shows, the effect that those will have on testosterone levels, um, and I, I've seen research where it, it's really actually yeah it really depends on how how much they sabotage their body 
right? And a lot of natural bodybuilders are not on testosterone when they're competing or up to the time that they're competing, but they may have been on it in the past. So what we try to see, we try to differentiate is like, okay, well, is this from most recent or is this from, you know, years ago of exposure? Um, the, it's kind of like the same thing with your female competitors. It's like they destroy their menstrual cycle just because they're so hypocaloric. They're over-exercising. They're not sleeping. They're putting their body under immense amounts of stress that, that will impact their testosterone levels. It's just like the guy who works too much, doesn't sleep, and eats like crap. It's a similar approach. You just have to correct the lifestyle aspects. And I think I'm kind of like beating a dead horse and it's so simple, but you need to address the lifestyle stuff. If you don't address the lifestyle stuff, the long-term benefits are not going to be there. That's the thing. I think that's maybe one of the, the areas that, you know, just basically the, the, these natural bodybuilders neglect is, is, you know, we, we already discussed the, the impact that just seven to eight hours of sleep is going to have. You know, but coming off a conscious prep, it may take them months to reestablish their health. Absolutely. Um, so that could be one of the main reasons for sure. Absolutely right. I think just just from the perspective of like looking at the level that bodybuilding takes the extremes of body composition to now, whether you're assisted or natural, there's only a very small percent of people that are competing that will be able to get into that condition and not compromise their health. That's just from my just from what I've seen. Yeah. The past and from what everyone I know in this in this industry has seen, like if you're if you're a natural bodybuilder and you want to win a British final, or you want to win a world title, you're gonna go, you're gonna have to go to a place where, you, where your health is not a good place. But it's now from a coaching perspective to realize like how am I going to get you as far away from that as possible as quickly as possible post show. And for most coaches, the sad thing is that is not in their thought process whatsoever. It's just you get a trophy. I put the photo on Instagram, job's done. Like it's, it's what happens those four, five, six, seven, eight, 12 months after that show where that person's life is in complete turmoil. Absolutely right. You know, it's not far off from what athletes do, yeah. right? Like in, in, in okay, right, professional like team athletes, right? Like LeBron James, um, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, all these American football players, like they put their body through hell. They can't do this beyond the age of 35 and 40. Like it's just not possible. Right. So why is it that these guys have a whole team to help them? Right. Like I'm convinced LeBron James has like the elite of the elite looking after him. Right. And he has a whole team to support him the people that you guys are helping or people who are competing, they need help. They need support. And to think that you're going to do this on your own. Like if you told me, like if I, if my goal was to become a premier top notch bodybuilding fitness competitor and I didn't have a coach, I would drive myself to the ground. I would completely drive myself to the ground because I am that person. I am that type of person. Like I wanted to finish med school and do all this other stuff and get done as quick as possible and write and publish. Like it, it was damaging, but I can imagine, shit, if I tried to do that to my physical body, by the way, med school takes a toll on your body too. Like it is not fun, right? But it's nothing compared to what we're doing physically in terms of competition and athletes. There are those people that just need to be coached to, to realize like you need to be a little bit crazy to go into this, um, uh, this fitness competition. Like you need to realize like, you need to understand, like, I'm going to put my body through hell right now. 
and I need to understand that or expect what's going to happen, but I need support. I can't just expect to do this on my own. And that's where you guys come into, it's a really important part. Like people need to understand that it's not just take this exercise this way, eat that, and you'll be perfect. Like it is not that simple. And then the, you know, years after, like I'm sure most of your clients want to have kids someday, right. Or they want to have a family or maybe they want to live like 80, 90 years old and live well. Like that's, you need to consider that too. Mm. I think, I think the, the, you know, maintaining fertility thing, that's going to be something that after listening to this, a lot of people, is it, is that, 10, 20 pounds of extra muscle that I'm getting from playing with these exhaustions hormones worth the risk of potentially not being able to have a family when I'm older. So, uh, All right. But, um, I mean, All right. Yeah, Absolutely right. Um, so I reckon um, I can probably wrap it there. That's a solid, solid part one. Hour <laughs> uh, 15. Yeah. Um, that was, um, I mean, exceptional content. And, um, Thank you very much for sharing it. Um, My pleasure. And we've only like scratched the surface, guys. Like, yeah. I, I wish, like, my goal is to educate as many people as possible. Like, like, I'm doing this podcast with you guys. I have no book to sell. I have no program to sell. I don't want more clients. Like, I don't want any of that. I, I genuinely just want people to learn more because, look, if I can teach you guys, if you learn three things today and you can help a hundred more people that makes me happy because I just can't help a hundred people times a hundred people times. Like it's just not possible. So again, like it's, there's so much more to learn and people ask me like, where do I learn this? Like spend, yeah. Spend the next like five to 10 years just like reading a bunch of shit. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean like the, 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 the industry and the world needs more people with your your approach of you know giving information so freely um, is, yeah. i hope well, i mean it's, it's a very very admirable trait very very so, so yeah. thank you yeah. and um and, uh, i think we'll for sure be getting ralph back on where where can we find you ralph on on what's your instagram tag just so listeners can, can hear yeah, so my, my Instagram is at dr.ralphesposito. So it's basically my name. Um, my website is the exact same thing, dr.ralphesposito.com. Same thing on Twitter, at dr.ralphesposito. So I'm all uh, on all those platforms. I post mostly on Instagram. Um, and, you know, I just try to put more information out there. If you have questions, you know, like where should I look for this research, look for that research, like that stuff that, you know, you'll, most of my Instagram posts have some type of research on it. So, um, you can find all the information there. Awesome. And yeah, for those that haven't followed Ralph, go and do it now because his stuff is epic and, um, and you'll learn. So, I mean, at the moment you're going to learn something every day. <laughs> I know. Geez. It's tiresome guys. <laughs> it is tiresome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the series is going to be epic. Like, I don't know what I know. I have no idea what I know. I know what I don't know. I certainly know what I don't know, but I don't know what I know. So people are like, oh, just post about something new. And I'm like, like I don't know. I like, guess it's all, this is like all I know. Like, I, like I, I don't know. It's fun though. It is fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you again. Perfect. And, um, thank you, man. And we'll, we'll, 
be, you know, be in touch to get you back on again soon. Awesome. Happy to be on. Awesome. Thank you for your time, Ralph. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks, guys.